evangelism is uh, one of those uh, really kind of churchy uh, words that we don't use very often any, anymore, but really essentially when, when we use the word evangelism, when we talk about that idea, really what we're talking about is sharing our faith story with other people, uh, sharing Jesus with other people. And if you study kind of church history, there have been a number of strategies that uh, the church has engaged in to try to accomplish evangelism. Uh, the early church in the book of Acts, you know, one of the things that was always said about the early church in the book of Acts was that uh, the people outside the church noticed about those inside the church that there was no needy persons among them. And this was a very provocative idea uh, to, to those uh, that were uh, kind of on the outside looking in, if you will, as they saw, man, they love each other. They care about one, one another. Uh, they take care of each other's needs. And it kind of drew people in. Um, later on, as you study church history, the, the um, government tried for a while, uh, government required Christianity. Uh, Rome tried this, a couple other nations followed suit. And uh, that didn't go very well as a strategy for evangelism. Uh, there's actually a story about a general uh, walking his army uh, through a river and saying, you have been baptized, now go to war, right? Uh, that, that it was just kind of required that you would become Christian. It, would be, it was required that you would consider yourself Christian. And like I said, it never, that never works well as a strategy uh, for evangelism. That the idea that you're going to kind of force people to have faith. Faith is just so personal and uh, at times so private that very very seldom ever works. And then we kind of entered into the era as you follow along in church history of the church building, especially over in Europe. If you go over there, these church buildings are like works of art. And the idea was build these big, beautiful, incredible church buildings and people will come in to look at the art. They'll come in to look at the stained glass and maybe, just maybe, they will meet Jesus. And that became a strategy for a while. Uh, eventually, kind of here in the States, we engaged in the door-to-door -door campaign strategy. Um, which uh, you would say that, man, that would never work today, and that may be so. But I'll tell you, I'm going to tell the story a little bit later on. This is how my family came to Jesus. Uh, was a church just kind of went door to door. And uh, it, it was 43 years ago, and I, I'm not sure that's the best strategy today anymore, but my family was forever changed uh, by that strategy. And right now we are in a season of what I will call the service campaign, uh, where churches are trying to have their service to the community uh, be their invitation to come to church where we love and serve our community. And we're hoping uh, that's noticed. That's the kind of the era the church is now. You go to any church um, across America, including ours, uh, that they will talk about how they love and serve the community um, as a way of making Jesus's name known. And here's the question. When you study kind of all of church history, and we didn't hit on every campaign, but when you study it, have we made it more complicated than it needs to be? Right, the strategy for sharing our faith, the strategy for sharing Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up uh, to Matthew chapter nine. Uh, Matthew chapter nine. We're in this series right now. You saw uh, the video uh, with my adorable daughter and son, uh, and uh, Lila absolutely was not left behind on that vacation. Just so you know, right? Um, uh, but uh, we're in this series right now called Road Trip 
where we're talking about our, our mission statement as a church, our vision statement is that we want to be a growing family journeying together to be more like Jesus, that we recognize that we're on a road trip together to be more like Jesus. And several years ago, we kind of had a strategy meeting, uh, the, the leadership team did, and we said, all right, we're telling people we're on a road trip, we're telling people on a journey, like what are we journeying toward? What are we all about? And these six kind of statements kind of came out of that, is that we want people to be on a worship journey as they're seeking Jesus, that he would be, his honor and his glory would be their primary thing. They're on a worship journey, making their life all about him. We're on a relationship journey, where as a church, this church is a lot about relationships. It's all about Jesus, but it's a lot about relationships, loving one another and serving one another. So we want to be on a, we want to have healthy, good relationships. We want to be on a generosity journey, that Jesus was first and foremost a generous person. He gave his life for our salvation. So we want to be like him and we want to be uh, increasingly generous. Maturity journey, that we don't want to be stuck as babies uh, in the faith, that we want to grow to full adulthood in, in the faith and we want to be uh, maturing believers. And then ministry journey, that we do want to, we want to serve our community. We want to serve each other. We want to make a difference with our life. And then uh, the one today that I skipped up top there is the evangelism journey, that we want to become a people that are ever increasingly uh, comfortable with sharing our faith story and sharing Jesus um, with, with others because Jesus was very comfortable engaging people. And that's the story I wanna show you. One of my favorite stories um, on this topic, Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and eat with him, came to eat with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." So quick background here, Matthew was a tax collector and he would have been uh, considered by many in his era, especially Jewish men and women, would have considered him a traitor to the cause. The way that this worked was that Rome was the occupying force in Israel at the time and they would auction off the ability to be a tax collector uh, in the first century. And so you would put in a bid to do this job. And so Matthew wanted this job. He had put in a bid uh, and his job was to collect taxes from uh, his own countrymen to pay to Rome. And tax collectors were known to be a little bit corrupt. They were known to overcharge. Uh, tax collection uh, was a ploy for the rich and the powerful to get more rich and more powerful. Very difficult to believe in this day and age, but that was the system back then, right? And uh, that they were, Matthew was getting rich off the collection of tax, off the backs of his own countrymen. And it is hard to, for me to articulate this well, Tax collectors were hated, absolutely hated by Jewish men and women because they're like, man, you are collecting tax for Rome. And in addition to that, you are overcharging me on my tax. And so Jesus happens onto the scene. He's uh, bringing his disciples in and uh, inviting them to follow him. And he's walking along and he sees a man in a tax collection booth. And he pauses for a minute and he looks at this tax collector named Matthew and he says, follow me. Leave behind your get rich scheme. Be, leave behind your booth. Leave behind your corruption. Leave behind your money making schemes and follow 
me. And I am telling you, we are not told that there was a crowd, but I am telling you, if there was a crowd, there would have been an audible gasp. What are you talking about, Jesus? Follow you. This man is a traitor to his country. This man is collecting tax off the backs of his own people. And then to make matters worse, look at what verse 10 records. Jesus ends up going to Matthew's house. So he calls him out of the tax collection. He goes to his house. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So in addition to calling Matthew to follow him, Jesus goes to a party with many tax collectors. I don't know why I'm using air quotes. It's what the text actually says. Many, right? Um, no, it's just what it says, right? Many tax collectors and sinners, and they're engaged in this kind of dinner party. And um, I'm telling you that they would have looked at Jesus, and, it's, and they, had, they had these categories, like, man, why is your leader... Why is your rabbi spending time with the worst sinner of our society? I'm telling you, this is what people would think. That why would he spend it? The tax collectors, there were tax collectors and there were sinners. Those are two separate categories. There's sinners and then there's the worst. There's the tax collectors. And this is just how the Jewish men and women of Jesus' day would have viewed this. And listen, I think this mindset still happens today. That there are sins... All of us have these categories, by the way. There are sins, and then there are sinners, right? And and we all have these categories, and we all uh, think through it in this way. We all, every one of us, have a group in mind that Jesus would never engage a person in lunch. Jesus would never go to a party with this type of person there. Jesus would never engage with these types of sinners. What is that category for you? What what is it for you? Maybe you would say, man, he'd never sit down and have lunch with a murderer. He'd never sit down and have lunch with a terrorist. Maybe those categories are a little too dramatic for you. Maybe for you it's a social issue. That he'd never sit down and have lunch with a gay couple. Or he'd never sit down and have lunch with a person that had the abortion. Maybe for you it's more personal than a social issue. And it's like that person that hurt me. That person that lied about me. That person that ruined my life. Jesus would never sit down and have lunch with with them, and we know, a lot of us have kind of been in the church for long enough that we know that we need to have a category where we sin too, right? So we'd say, yeah, I sin too. I'm prideful or angry or greedy, but man, over here, these are the sinners. These are the ones that Jesus would never spend time with. These are the ones that Jesus would never go near. These are the ones that Jesus would never engage with at at lunch. And we hesitate to say it out loud, but I'm telling you, I think we all have these categories, just like the Pharisees did. That he is with tax collectors and sinners. And how dare he spend time with those people? So let's talk about for, for a minute, why is Jesus there? Because you can hear the disdain in the Pharisee's voice, can't you? Say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing there? Why is he engaging them in lunch? Why is he, now he's at a party, right? What on earth is Jesus doing? And Jesus addresses this very question about what he's doing there and what his heart is and why he's engaging with the tax collector. And here's what he says. Kind of amuses me. I'll tell you why in a minute. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Now, like I said, I think this is actually kind of funny because to me, Jesus is at a party in this moment, and this is like a party killer, 
right? Where they, where they come to Jesus and like, what are you doing at this party? Why are you engaging with tax collectors and sinners? These people, whatever it is, whoever it was, these people in this other category that we believe Jesus would never engage them. Jesus would never spend time. Why is he doing this? And Jesus says, well, here's why. They're sick. That just strikes me as the end of the party, right? But I will tell you, there is something, first of all, about Jesus's demeanor that allows him to say these very difficult things to people. He says, man, you have this spiritual disease called sin, and it's affected everybody in mankind from Adam until today, and you have this sickness, and later on he will say, I am the good doctor. So I think it was Jesus's demeanor that allowed him to say something very difficult, right? Because if you went to a party this week and said, what are you doing at this party? It's like, I'm, I'm celebrating here with these sickos you'd probably get asked to leave the party, right? So, so he's engaging a discussion about their spiritual condition called sin. And here's the deal. It's not that the tax collector had sin and the Pharisees and religious leaders did not. That's not what is going on in this story. Here's what I think is going on in this story and why they were offended. I think the tax collector knew they were sinful. The Pharisee did not. I think the text, I think when Jesus said, man, they, they are sick, they need a doctor, they have this spiritual thing in their life called sin, I think the tax collector knew something had gone wrong. Something had gone amiss. Their life, they, they probably did not grow up and ever say to themselves, you know what, all their friends are going, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer. And he's going, I want to be a tax collector and I want to hurt my fellow citizens. No. They didn't say that. This is just something that they needed money or they needed help or whatever. And they ended up giving into this temptation to, to be a corrupt business person in, in this case, in Matthew's case. And so I think it was, I think the reason they weren't offended is there was a piece of them that knew that what Jesus was saying was the truth. That I do need help. I do have this spiritual disease uh, called, called sin and I need a, a doctor. And listen, I think when we look at our society it is easy to look outside these doors and to say as a society, we are sick. We, we have a spiritual disease called sin. I think it's easy to look in the newspaper and see it. It is easy to turn on CNN and see it. It is easy to look around our neighborhoods and see it, that we have this thing called sin and it is disrupting our community. It is disrupting our lives. It is disrupting our relationships. It is disrupting everything. I think it's easy to see that. Here's what's harder. I'm sick too. I'm sick too. I have the disease as well. I'm sick as well. And that is a lot harder to look in the mirror and to affirm that, man, sin has affected everybody. Sin has affected me as well. And I think that's what's going on in the story. The tax collector would say, yeah, I've made mistakes. I've, I've screwed up. I am a sinner. And the Pharisee refuses to acknowledge it. And so what Jesus invites the Pharisees to is the same thing he invites the tax collector to. He invites them to know the doctor. He says, Steve, he says to me this morning, Steve, I know you have a disease. I know that you are sinful and I am the great doctor. And Jesus does two things as the great physician. One is he heals. 
He heals us so that our sin that affects our life and our relationships and everything, our culture, this sin that affects everything, Jesus says, I will forgive you so that it doesn't result in your death. We have a disease that does not have to result in our death. So Jesus says, let me forgive you. Let, let, me, uh, let, let me forgive all of your sin from the cross. So Jesus is a great doctor in that way, but Jesus also empowers us because he loves us. So Jesus says, through my Holy Spirit, I wanna give you the power to overcome your sin. Matthew, you do not have to sit in that tax collector's booth another day. Pharisee, you don't have to sit in your self-righteousness another day. Liar, you do not have to sit in that another day. Jesus says, through my Holy Spirit, I wanna empower you and I wanna help you to live a new life. And that is good news because I know I need to be forgiven. I am not somebody that has a hard time seeing my sin. I think I see it. So I am glad that he forgives me because I know I need it. But I am also glad he doesn't just stop at forgiveness. That Jesus as the great physician says, let me empower you. Let me make you stronger through the spirit so that you can live a different and better life life. And if what I just said is true, if that is the power of Jesus, forgiveness and empowerment, if that is the power of Jesus, then here's what I want to propose to you. A major priority for the church must be introducing the spiritual sick, which is all of us, introducing the spiritually sick to the great doctor. Our priority has got to be introducing people to Jesus, the one who can forgive them, the one who can empower them, the one who can help them. And this is what Jesus was all about. You see it all throughout his ministry. Prostitutes are coming to Jesus. Tax collectors are coming to Jesus. Murderers are coming to Jesus. They are coming to Jesus and saying, I am sick and I need help. And Jesus says, first you're forgiven, but second of all, you don't have to live this way anymore. You can live a different life. You can live a better life. And they flock to Jesus because of his demeanor of grace. He says, man, I, he says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, does anybody, after he kind of drives the crowd away, he says, does anyone condemn you? She said, no, no one's here to condemn me. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus was all about this. Like, I forgive you, be empowered. I forgive you, be empowered. I forgive you, be empowered. Again and again and again to the tax collector, to the prostitute, to the adulterer, to the liar, to the sick. He says, go and be well be forgiven, and walk in new life. And Jesus actually commissioned the early church with this. He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teach people about Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In other words, grace and new life are available to everyone. Not people just in this category, right? Because we all have the categories. We don't want to admit it. I get that. But we all have the categories. Not people just in this category or not just people in this category, but for everyone. Everyone. Forgiveness is available to you. Grace is available to you. New life is available to you in Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. The early church, Jesus started out with this passion for this. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, they're all flocking to Jesus. And the early church started out with this bang where the, the, the people are, that, that recognized their sin and recognized their sickness were coming to the healer, uh, to the great doctor, the great physician for healing. And then something happened. By the time you get to the epistles of the New Testament, something had changed. 
And all of a sudden, Paul and Peter, they're writing these letters to these churches that had lost their focus. Like, he writes to one church that uh, is struggling with legalism. And when the gospel is, come to Jesus as you are, and he will forgive you and he will empower you. That's the gospel. Legalism says, no, get yourself cleaned up first, and then Jesus will somehow love you more and restore you. And so one church Paul writes to, and they're struggling with this idea, and and Paul says, you've got to be done with this legalism, and you've got to teach people to come to Jesus as, as they are. One church was struggling with worship issues. So when the gospel is, come to Jesus, worship him, he will forgive you, he will empower you, all of a sudden they are arguing about what style of worship is better. Should we worship like Jews or should we worship like Gentiles? And then some of these churches were struggling with broken relationships. And and the whole focus of the church, the whole focus of what they were doing became about who was right and who was wrong in the conflict. And things had changed by the time the epistles roll around. And the church is no longer on its mission. And you might say it this way. The church had gone the way of the Pharisees. And so Jesus addresses these religious leaders that were so confused uh, and had such a misunderstanding about who he was and what he came to do, that this is for everyone. They never understood that, that this is for everyone, for the Jew, the Gentile, person in that category, person in this guy. It is for everyone who wants new life. It is for everyone who wants to be healed. And they misunderstood this uh, so, uh, in, in such a big way that Jesus attempts to address it uh, in this text. And here's what he says. I love this line. He says, go and learn what this means. All right, so to any Pharisee that is struggling with the idea that this is for everyone, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. All right, this is actually a quote from an Old Testament story called Hosea. Very, very provocative uh, story uh, that that you can read about, but essentially God commanded a prophet named Hosea to marry a prostitute. All right, he commands him to do it, and the story goes, when you read the book of Hosea, it goes exactly like you think that storyline would go. He's obedient to God. He marries this prostitute. She kind of goes out at night, comes home. He is wrestling with the jealousy and and the difficulty of that. He gets her home. At times, she'd been abused and mistreated. He cleans her up. He helps her. The next night, she goes out again, and and he's up all night worried about her and waiting for her, and this is exactly what Hosea's life is like. You say, why on earth would God ask one of his prophets to marry a prostitute. And at the time in Israel's history, uh, Israel was essentially cheating on God with other little G-gods. They were worshiping false idols. And so God kind of held up Hosea as an illustration of, you want to know what this feels like? Look at your buddy, look at your neighbor Hosea. This is what this feels like. I am called to be your God. I am called to be your one and only God. And you are having these affairs with all these other gods. And so God lifts up Hosea as an example of what this felt like and what this looks like. And so Hosea lives this life. And there comes this time where he addresses the people of Israel. And I want to show you what he says. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces. He will heal us, but he will heal us. He has injured us but he will bind up our wounds. So this is coming after a time of God's discipline on Israel. It says, after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. And then in verse six, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
acknowledgement of God rather than a burnt offering. So follow the train of thought here. God's people are worshiping other gods. They're bowing down to him. God has sent his prophets. He has sent judgment. He has sent Hosea. He has sent all of this stuff. And the people are now kind of looking back to God and they're going, God, what do you want from us? Yes, we have cheated on you. Yes, we have strayed from you. Yes, we have done what, we are, what you are accusing us of doing. What do you want from us? Do you want this offering, that offering, the other offering? What is it that you want? And God tells Hosea, tell the people, what I want is mercy, not sacrifice. The word mercy there, it, it could be understood in this way. What God is saying is, I want a loving relationship with you. So in that way, it doesn't matter what you've done. What I want is for you to come back to me. What I want is for you to come back to me and I will heal you. I will bind your wounds. I will forgive you. I will empower you. God is saying that he will restore us, forgive us, heal us. He is a good and gracious God this way. He says, you go back and you tell the people, there is no sacrifice that I want you to do in this instance. What I want you to do it's to trust my mercy. What I want you to do is trust my loving kindness. What I want you to do is come back to me. And he is addressing two things in this text. One is God's desire for you to come back to him. Man, I, I wish I could articulate to you how much God wants you to come back to him. And some of you are, are being held back because you say, I've screwed up. I have made mistakes. Trust his mercy. And you say, what could I do to make it up to God? Could I offer this sacrifice or that sacrifice or the other thing? And God says, no, you trust my mercy, not sacrifice. You come back to me exactly as you are. So he's talking about uh, God's desire for us to come back. And he's also talking about the way that we come back. We come back through mercy, not sacrifice. Now that is not to say that Hosea is knocking sacrifice. He's not. He's not knocking sacrifice as an act of obedience. He's not knocking sacrifice as an act of love. What he is knocking is sacrifice as a way back to God. They say, no, the only way you're gonna be able to come back to God and have the relationship with him that you were created to have is through his mercy and through his grace and through his kindness. And so we still buy into this idea when we have screwed up and we have messed up, here's our initial thought, I will make this right. I will make an offering. I will sacrifice. I will serve in middle school ministry for 10 years. I will lay down on the altar. I, I, will, I, will, I will serve in kid zone. I, I will do whatever it takes to make things right. And God says, no, no, no. Stop trusting in sacrifice and start trusting in mercy. Stop trusting in sacrifice and start trusting in mercy. Start trusting in kindness. Start trusting that God is that way because he is. And years after Hosea, years and years later, God would put on human flesh. Uh, Jesus Christ would come and he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and the religious leaders are so angry and confused and asking why. And Jesus says, here's why. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees wanted the tax collectors to pay back in some way, to earn the right to, to be back, back in the family. And Jesus is showing them God's heart. I want people to have a relationship with the Father. And I, Jesus says, will go to incredible lengths 
to make that happen. I will go incredible lengths to make that happen. And the reason they were so angry at Jesus is they had lost sight of the heart of God. They had lost sight of his kindness. They had lost sight of his grace. They had lost sight of his mercy. And may it never be true of us. You know what was said about the Pharisees? You talk about people that are trying to kind of earn their way back into God's good graces. You know what is said about the Pharisees? That when it came to their weekly offering and uh, their, their gift to God, they tithed their spice rack. The Bible says that. They tied their spice rack. So they would kind of get ready to write their check or whatever they did back, back then. And they would get ready to go to church. And before they went to church, they opened up the spice rack that none of us even looks at. Say, all right, about 10% of my cumin, about 10%. Yeah. And they, they, they tied their spices. Because this idea of earning it was so important to them. And Jesus is reminding them in this morning, in this moment, you can't earn it. You can't make it right. You need mercy. And the only reason you don't think you need mercy is you have developed these ridiculous categories of my sin and theirs. Jesus said, it's all sin. You can't earn it. You can't make it right. I desire for you to desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so he says, man, come to me. Come to me. I'll forgive it. I'll bind your wounds. I'll make it right. And if this is true, and I believe that it is, then sharing our Savior, sharing our great physician, has got to be one of the highest priorities for our church family. When it comes to those in our community that don't know Jesus and don't know our God, our highest priority has got to be articulating grace, articulating mercy, and that you come to him as you are. You don't have to get yourself fixed up to come in these doors. You come as you are. You meet Jesus. He will bind your wounds. He will forgive your sin, and he will empower you to live a different life. But you come as you are. And I will tell you, when it comes to sharing our faith, I think fear is an enemy. When you start, start thinking about talking to your neighbor about Jesus, fear is an enemy. I, I certainly think that that is, 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 is true, and I know it's true uh, for, for me, um, but I will tell you the, the biggest enemy of all to evangelism is pride. That I earned this, I sacrificed enough, I prettied myself up for Jesus, and now you do it too. That is the biggest enemy to evangelism, is people that have lost sight of God's mercy. People that have lost sight of God's grace. People that have lost sight of his loving kindness. And they think as the Pharisees do, that I made it right by tithing my flipping spice rack. I made it right. And Jesus says, no, you have not made it right. You have been the recipient of incredible kindness and incredible goodness. So fall in love with his mercy. Fall in love with his grace. So in my family, there is a long string of kind of alcoholism, not church attendance, lots of brokenness. And you may wonder, how does a person uh, come to Jesus and become a pastor? Uh, when you look at kind of my family history, how does that happen, right? And eventually, almost my whole family became Christians. Let me tell you the way it started for my nuclear family. Um, I was born in 1976, uh, and um, there was something about my birth that my parents knew they needed God. I don't know what that is. My sister, they had very little spiritual interest with my sister. The minute I was born, they were like, we need Jesus. Um, and uh, so the Holy Spirit was already kind of working in them. 
and uh, they had moved into the house that I was raised in, and one day there's a knock at the door. And it was, like I told you earlier, it was literally a church that was going door to door. And they stopped at my parents' door and they invited them to church. And uh, my mom was uh, raised uh, Catholic, but was kind of disenfranchised from Catholicism. And my dad was kind of raised a priester. Um, he'd uh, go, uh, you know, at Christmas and Easter to stay off God's judgment, uh, you know, um, was kind of the mindset in his family. And uh, neither of them had ever really gone to church much anymore. And there was something about that knock, something about the spirit and my parents decided to go to church uh, for the first time regularly in their life. And I got to watch from 1976 on, I got to grow up watching my parents grow up in their faith. It was a real honor and a real treat for me to kind of see that firsthand. But I will tell you something. My life was changed. My eternity was changed. My family's life and eternity was changed because of a group of men and a group of women who took this seriously. And my church was not perfect. I've told you some stories uh, uh, from my church growing up. It was not perfect. But I will tell you, in that moment that they knocked on that door, they were knocking because they loved mercy. And they loved grace. And they loved God's kindness. And they invited my parents into that. And our family was forever changed because of a small group. of my, My church growing up was 50, 60 people a small group of men and a small group of women who took this idea seriously, that there are people in this world, like all of us, who are sick and they need the great physician. And so I am telling you, one of the things that comes with this whole idea of loving mercy and loving kindness is that certainly we need a strategy. And I think about this as individuals that I hope individually, I want you to think through your strategy to kind of share your faith story, just like I just did, to share your faith story with others about how you came to know the great physician. You came to know the doctor, the doctor who healed you and made you uh, and changed your life forever to think through how you can do that. And I want to offer you the same prayer that we talked about last week. God, would you open doors? Would you open doors for me individually to share my faith this week? And I promise you, whenever I pray this, it is amazing what happens. Have you ever experienced this before? That God, you know, would, would you open doors this week? And then you're at lunch and like the, the waitress is like asking you spiritual questions all of a sudden. Like, man, God answers that prayer. So I want to invite you individually to have that as part of your strategy. That, man, I am going to pray for God to open doors for me to share my faith story with others. And then for us uh, as a congregation on Sundays, I think this means several things. And I've been preaching a super long time. I know that. So just... Three more minutes, four more minutes tops, all right? Um, I think for us as a congregation, it means several things. It means that we're friendly. So when, so when someone comes through these front doors, uh, we don't know what they're struggling with, we don't know what's going on in their life, but we have great big smiles on our face and we welcome them to the church and we tell them we are glad they're here. Why? Because we're glad they're here. We're glad they're here. And our prayer is that whatever is going on in their life, they would meet the great physician here. They would meet the great physician who can heal them and bind their wounds and bring them to new life. So we're friendly, we're not judgmental, that we don't comment comment on the way a person is dressed or the way that they look. Because we would never want that to impede someone from coming to Jesus. And and our, our attitude becomes come as you are, Come dressed as you are. If you just woke up 10 minutes before church, get here as quick as you can. 
because we believe that, that something happens when the church worships together, that people have an opportunity to meet the great physician. So we're not judgmental. It means that we are a me too church, that we don't, we don't point the finger at other people. We don't point the finger at other sins. Instead, whenever we're talking about sin, and we try to do this from the stage as well, whenever we're talking about sin, it's like, oh man, sin has hurt your life. Sin has broken your life. Me too. Me too. That's what it means to be a me too church. Me too. Yeah, my family, oh, yeah, I'm trying to tell the story of my family in a rated G way for church. I could have told you a rated R story, right, about my family's background. So yeah, me too. Yeah, you got some alcohol in your background? Me too. You got some abuse in your background? Me too. You got some hardship in your background? Me too. That when we talk to people, we adopt not a us and them mindset. Too many churches have us and them, but instead a me too attitude that we have all been affected by this thing, uh, we've all come into hardship. Some of us have met the doctor and some of us are going to meet the doctor in the future, right? I, I, and I really believe that. So um, it's just about having met the doctor or, or not met the doctor, but we have a mean to, um, we have a uh, me too mindset. Uh, we are not preoccupied with our needs and our preferences. Uh, about five years ago, and this uh, number has gotten worse from my understanding, about five years ago, uh, I saw a statistic for the Big C Church that honestly brought me to tears. Here's the statistic. 89% of people, and I believe that number is well into the 90s now, 89% of people believe the church exists to meet their needs. Eighty-nine percent believe the church exists to meet their needs. I think we have failed people. That if you truly believe that, that the church exists to meet your needs, we have failed people. Because the church exists to connect the broken, the hurting, and the sinful, which is all of us, to the doctor. That's why we exist. So will I use video if it will help connect people to the doctor? I will. Will I use certain types of music if it will help connect people to the doctor? I will. Will I use humor that, let's be honest, at times gets a little irreverent? If it will, yeah, I, I get that sometimes. Will I do that to help connect people to the doctor? I will. We will do anything short of sin to connect people that need to be connected to the doctor, and that statistic bothers me so much that 89% of Christendom believes the church exists for them. If you've got the doctor, that, that's awesome. You've been healed by him. You've been made new by him. Now let's have that attitude toward others and begin to pray for them to, to meet the doctor, to have their lives changed as well. It also means, uh, the last one in this way, uh, to, there's two more. Another thing that this message means is that we're gonna do our best to stay involved in our local community and with Oak Grove in particular, to be able to meet needs and hopefully maybe someday tell them about the great doctor who has a plan and purpose for their life. And it also means what we've been involved in the last couple years, facility-wise. Um, I am a Gen Xer, and what that means is that when it came to the building renovation, I was a late adapter on that idea. 
Um, because as uh, generationally, I just wanted to believe that facilities don't matter. And then I started thinking about where I take my kids to eat and where I had them at daycare at the time and uh, the school that we went to. And all of a sudden I had this kind of aha moment several years ago of facilities do matter. I'm, I'm making decisions about facilities all the time when it comes to my kids. And so we kind of entered into this process of um, having our facilities um, up to speed, looking nice, new roofs, new carpet, and all of that stuff. Um, and like I said, I was a real late adapter to that because I wanted to believe it didn't matter. But the fact of the matter is we do not want facility to get in the way of someone meeting Jesus. And so, you know, we try to have a little bit of creativity in our service. We, we try to do all of that as a strategy toward evangelism so people can meet the great physician. And let's make no mistake about it. Jesus is what people need. And so he must be our church's highest priority in our building, our programs, our people, and our mindsets to introduce people to Jesus because he changes everything. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, we thank you that he does change everything. And um, I am so passionate about this, Lord, because I have seen in my family the difference that Jesus makes. You go back in my family a long time and there's sin has wreaked havoc. But over time, first my uncle came, then my dad came, then my other uncle came, and then my grandparents came. And I watched one by one people in my family come to Jesus and be forever changed. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. May we be a come as we are church. Just come on in as we are and watch you do the work to change us and transform us. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're gonna celebrate right now the work that Jesus does through his cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how believing in that changes so much uh, in this life and in the next. And uh, this is just an opportunity for us. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing Jesus' body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And this is my, the difference that, man, at some point you came to him as you were. At some point you came to him as you were, and he forgave you, and he empowered you, and he changed the trajectory of your life. And this is an opportunity for us to remember that and celebrate that, that we are forgiven. We are empowered, and we are changed. So you hold on to those cups, and then I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive uh, communion together as a church family.